lying on the lawn as a child and looking up at the starry night, the conclusion that I drew over and over again was that there's something I don't know about, but it's big and it's powerful and it's spiritual. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Reverend Molly Cameron, kind enough to speak to us from Columbus, Ohio, where she lives. Thank you very much. Well, you're welcome. Glad to be here. You're the founding minister of the Columbus Center for Spiritual Living. Center for Spiritual Living, lots of our listeners, including me, this is the first introduction we have to what the Center for Spiritual Living is. Tell me about it. Mm -hmm. Center for Spiritual Living grew out of a a movement that started in, oh, I think 1918. Actually, we're celebrating our 100 years this year. And it, it came about through the work of Emerson and some early thinkers that that began moving us in a different direction from traditional religion into um, a way of thinking about God as an interior power and force. Let's go back, because I always love to uh, to ask our guests what their spiritual beginnings are. What were your first notions of God or religion or any of that? Can you remember back? You know, I was thinking about that, and, and what came to me was that Lying on the lawn as a child and looking up at the starry night mm-hmm. is really one of the first experiences of, of that divine mystery that, that I ever had. I didn't grow up with a solid teaching about God or spirituality, so I kind of stumbled through finding it on my own. What did you feel? Because we have all been there laying back looking up at yeah. the stars if we're lucky enough to live in a place we can see them. Yeah, which I'm not here, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it, it also had to do with my brother's fascination with the universe and the stars and the planets and all of that. And he used to tell me things that he'd read in his magazines. And it just created a sense of of wonder, you know, a sense of real awe at the expanse of the universe and the idea of infinity and the idea of something so powerful that it could keep the planets spinning and the stars and all of that. I think that was my first sense of something so big and so mysterious that had an impact on my life. It's interesting that you frame that, and maybe this is how you felt back then, you felt that there was a spiritual essence, not just wonder at the scientific evidence in front of your eyes. Exactly. Exactly. I would look at a lit match and say, you know, what is fire? And, the, and you know, my chemistry teacher would tell me it's blah, 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 blah. And I would say, yeah, but, but what is it? I, I always wanted to know <laughs> what the internal workings of things were. And the conclusion that I drew over and over again was that there's something I don't know about, but it's big and it's powerful and it's spiritual. Well, that's so that a- began a quest for me. That sounds like the beginning of a definition of God. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So fill me in on how you've developed what God is to you. Well, that's a really good question, (laughs) because it took me well into adulthood to to put the pieces together. I learned about religion 
and something just didn't quite fit for me. So I kept looking at this other, this, this kind of a grander spiritual vision around me. I began to think about God as something within me that as I learned more about the, the scientific world, I thought, well, you know, there's got to be an intelligence there. Mm-hmm. Because these things just don't happen randomly. And the more I learned about science, the more I thought, I can't just give that over to chance. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me. So I began thinking about it, uh, an intelligence, a superior intelligence, that was kind of the, what was moving evolution forward in the world. So my disciplines were more about uh, looking at, at what was coming out in science and philosophy that piqued my interest. And I started conceiving of a, a God that is not only greater than I am, but it is also within me and really truly as me. So God became an idea that God is all there is. I've read that you're an avid seeker of truth wherever you find it, including many religions and philosophies, which fits with the fact that you've studied, that you've pursued it. But now let's let's do what no philosopher has done well at, (laughs) but they've all tried, which is ask you to define truth. How or or at least at least how do you know it when you find it? Oh, you know, I, that is a question I cannot answer, because truth is like gravity. Mm-hmm. You can, you know it, but you can't see it. You can see the, the action of it, but you can't see it itself. So truth for me is that which resonates with good. Mm. You know, when I hear it, I can hear it and understand it as truth. And more, more importantly, I can hear it when it's not. I can sense it when it isn't true for me. So, does that make any sense to you? Yes, yes, it does. You know, for years uh, you've worked at various leadership companies, and and I'm thinking that all you've been a, an actress, you've toured and performed, yes. and I'm thinking that all the while, while you're doing these other things, there is something stirring in you that eventually is going to lead you to the ministry, this ministry you yeah. do. Tell me about that journey. Quite a journey. Yeah, it it, it started, you know, the, the life of an actress can be a little wild. It's... um. It's an interesting and fabulous and necessary profession, but I kind of got lost on the way. I got lost in the world and the, the affairs of the world, and what developed for me was addiction. And in the depths of the despair that addiction can bring, mm-hmm. I began just saying, you know, that I either have to live or I have to die. I have to find a way to live because that's what I wanted. And so I began working with this idea uh, that there is a God, that there is a power that can, in a sense, rescue me. And that was my experience. When I hit such a low place that I was ready to just surrender it and say, okay, I'm going to believe, even if I have to pretend that there's a personal sense of the divine for me that will help me in this. Mm-hmm. And it was a long journey, but it, it was a, a good one because step by step by step, I began to experience relief 
and got back on a, a different path, which is very narrow. The spiritual path is very narrow, and the path to recovery is very narrow. So I learned that if I let go of that that belief and faith in this divine power, that, you know, I was going to be open to my addictions again. Mm-hmm. So that became the path for me, one of prayer, of meditation, of turning always towards that goodness that I see in myself and I see in the world. Otherwise, I would get lost again. So that's the path that led me to ministry. First of all, I'm really glad you chose to live. Yeah, me too, me too. (laughs) And second, you know, I'm thinking about the whole concept of coming to a place where you talked about kind of hitting that bottom that, that you had to surrender to something to open up. And then your impulse, and tell me if this guess is close, that having found some relief, that having found hope, that having found God, that you seem to have then felt like you were compelled to share that with other people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I took my life 180 degrees only through the help of this divine friend. Mm Mm-hmm. Then I began looking out at the world and seeing that there are lots of people that suffer from uh, not just addiction, but just from living in the world. There's so much confusion and there's so much that can take us off of this path of, of good. So that's what began my idea that I needed to share it. And when I went inside and asked, is this you know, is this the, the vision for my life? Is this a higher vision for my life? There was such a resounding yes that it, it, became, it, it became compelling. It was something that I needed to do. This is personal, but this is something so important to people. The whole idea of, of seeking, whether through yeah. an outside God or a spirituality that's inside, but then having an answer, you said this powerful yes, what was that? What was, how do you perceive that personally? Well, I, I call it my personal burning bush because the answer was so big and so fiery. It was like, all right, get on with it. I've been telling you for years. <laughs> do it. Just get off it and do it. So it, it really left no room for doubt in my mind. I talked to other ministers who have not had that kind of... Um, a solid, unforgettable response. But for me, because I think just because of who I was, always bringing this idea that, who me? You know what I mean? You've heard about it in the Bible. Moses saying, who me? Who me? Uh, All of these these figures who were called to something greater than, than they're doing, just saying, oh, you can't mean me. That call must be for somebody else. But it was for me. It was just for me. You know, one of the most interesting things I read on your website is this short little quote of yours. It says, I get to help others by helping myself. I can't teach anyone anything, but I can model what it means to deepen in consciousness. That's how people rediscover who they are. Talk to me about that process. Yeah, it's a long one for me to learn how to do this, and I'm I'm still not very great at it, but I'm learning. And that is to simply model for someone what it means to be a listening, open heart so that I can hear 
people and where they're at, what their opinions, what their beliefs are, where their struggles are, and then model in a very, very kind sense a different way to look at it. Mm-hmm. And what this does for people is it creates a sense of safety that many, many people don't have in the world. And also the idea that there's a different perspective that they can take. And when that shift happens, you can just see it in their faces. You know, oh, oh, I see a different way. And then they can begin to change the way they think about their lives and the, and the lives of everyone in the world. And shift turns into transformation over time. Well, what things in your own personal life, and, and then later I'd like to talk just a bit more about your ministry and interactions with other people, but for, mm-hmm. for yourself, what are the things that if you think, I need to be in touch with God? Are there rituals? Are there remembrances or prayers or meditation? What are the things that is your practice? Mm. You know, my practice has changed a lot over the years, but the basic one is, is meditation, simply letting this this human machine drop thought and let go of that that thinking process that, that tangles my mind sometimes. And in that process of just relocating my awareness to silence, the depths of silence, because what I think it does for me is it just clears the way for that internal transmission, that message from my higher sense of who I am, that sense of, of God, that sense of spirit that's in me. So that's number one. And whenever I let go of it, I get cluttered again. My life gets cluttered. So spending 20 minutes to a half an hour every day just getting quiet, that's number one. And then number two, something that I used to just make fun of all the time, and that's affirmations, uh-huh. affirming a different way of being, a, a different way of thinking about things. To me, that's a channel to truth. When I'm in a fix and I come up with some way to affirm the opposite of that, for example, you know, uh, this happens to so many people. Oh, my goodness, I cannot pay my rent. Oh, my goodness. Instead of saying, I cannot pay my rent, then I will affirm by saying, there is something within me that brings me abundance, and I choose to trust that today. Something like that, that mm-hmm. I can change the track of my mind. So that's very important. And then prayer. Prayer, I believe that when I go to this spirit with something that I need or want or a condition that I want to change, if I speak that wish, knowing that it is the Father's good pleasure to give me what I seek, then it's already done, just as Jesus did. Mm -hmm. It's already given. Then I'm off the hook for having to make something happen, and then I'm delighted when I see it come to full fruition in my life. Whatever that looks like, it's never apples for apples, but it's, I want greater peace will show up as kind people and opportunities that help me to reach that in my mind is true. You know, uh, I often ask people how their faith journey has progressed over time, and you've given a great illustration when you said, I now do something that I used to make fun of. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think maybe lots of us have, by the end of or after several decades, arrived at that point in various parts <laughs> of our lives. <laughs> yeah. I mean, these practices have been around for thousands and thousands of years for a reason. It's because they work. They work. I also love ritual. I have imported the ritual of speaking affirmations on a mala, the 108 beads that come to us from the Eastern tradition. Mm -hmm. If I am really in in an emotional fix, I will just speak an affirmation according to the beads and go around the beads and then call it good, call it done. And then I get to wait to see it come to come into being in my life. So when you look back where you are now, do you feel like you were kind of pushed along and guided? Without a doubt. I don't think anything has happened to me in my life that hasn't given me a blessing. That everything has led me to the next step. Whether it's painful, a painful step or not, or a painful happening, that in retrospect I can look back and say everything has happened to me for a reason, that it has actually been the next thing to get me off of where I was and into the next level of being. Have you always been this comfortable speaking of God publicly? No. Heavens no. That's taken a lot of time. Probably really since I became a minister. Maybe that's why I went into ministry, so that I could... I would be actually be forced to speak about God publicly and openly because it's such a reality in my life. And it's what has allowed me to move into a life of, of joy, of really knowing Joseph Campbell's sense of bliss. It only comes to me through the idea of there being that higher space that knows only joy. And when I open to it, then, man, my bliss is right there. It's like a slow leak into my life of joy that comes from, not from the world around me, but from an interior world. Joy is all there is. When you have people come and want to investigate or be part of your congregation, church meetings, whatever they might be, how are you helpful to people who come and want to participate or want to learn? Well, first of all, I try very hard to make it a safe place. It's a very inclusive spirituality that I practice. So we have people, we have Sufis and people from the um, Japanese religion, Shinto, and all kinds of people that are coming to our center. I want to make people comfortable, Mm -hmm. whether they're young or old, whether they are gay or straight, whether they're male or female, that's, that is the first thing that I do, is to try to make a solidly safe space. So I say every, every week, whatever path you're on, I'm here to support you. We are here to support you and finding out who you are at the deepest level that you can go. Do you have a sense, you know, we don't have to even answer this question, but hey, you're fun to talk to, so I'm just going to ask. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Do you see a difference in either people who believe in God or people who don't or feel they can't? I see people who are seeking something. I see a lot of people come to this group because they're hurting, 
because they don't have a way out of whatever tangle they're in or their marriage is in trouble or their children are giving them grief or something. And so what I see is a willingness to explore. The concept of God is very, very hard for a lot of people. I use the word, even though I know it can be touchy, I use the word because I want them to connect with that universal idea that, well, yeah, there is a universal idea of a greater power. There is. I see it in all the major religions. I see it, a version of it, in people's personal lives, whether they attach that to whether they make money their God or their their spouse their God, that there's a sense of needing an attachment to something either outside or greater than themselves. So I see a willingness. I would call it a predisposition. Mm-hmm. I think we're wired to want to believe in something greater than ourselves. Have you ever had times in the middle of it all where things have just come crashing down and you thought, oh boy, I don't even know if this is real? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, not often, but deep. I've had things just completely fall apart, and I'm thinking, how can I even speak about this when I have so much, so many questions in my own heart? And so that brings us back to faith, doesn't it? Yeah, what, back to faith. what bounces you back, or what do you choose in that moment? Choice is a good word, because it is. It's always a choice. I come back to, really, how do I want to feel? How do I want to feel? I want to feel good. I want to feel whole. I want to feel well and loved and loving. And in those times, that's when I practice seeing this in other people, Mm. that there is a depth and a spark of love and life in each one of us, and that's what connects us. So you're looking inward, but you're looking outward, too. Yeah, yeah, because it will mirror back to me that spark of life and love and joy that I have, and that's what connects us to everything, I think, is that sense of, I mean, God is life itself, maybe, when I realize that, when I'm in my the depths of, of something that feels like despair, then I say, well, there is life in me. There is life everywhere around me. Let God be that right now when I can't feel it as something deeper or more loving or kindly. Let that just be life itself. Hmm. You mentioned for just a minute finding joy. I wonder if maybe just to put a finer point on it, if I can ask, what are the things in your spiritual life or your relationship with God that bring you joy? Well, I think humor. I think that's an underrated quality of God. (laughs) Humor. (laughs) Because I find that laughing is just the greatest way to get in touch with joy ever. And a lot of times something will happen and I attribute it to to this divine presence that's around me and just have a good laugh with it, you know, just a good laugh. So joy is, I think, the most fundamental attribute of God for me. Joy is something that I find in in people all around me. 
I have a great sense of humor. It hasn't really shown up too much on this call, but I do. And so, <laughs> We're delving deep. <laughs> <laughs> so to laugh with people, to appreciate their humor, and to make them laugh is just one of the greatest ways of uh, of creating joy and finding ways that just to find funny in daily living that doesn't harm anyone, that doesn't is not at the expense of anyone or anything. That, to me, is spiritual joy. Just how funny it all is. It's pretty funny, isn't it, Steve? Life? We do have to learn to laugh at ourselves, if not everything else. Exactly. And boy, does that lighten things up immediately, just to laugh. You've written that one of your favorite avenues of truth is the new science emerging, ways that scientific discoveries support new thought ideas. What do you mean when you say that? Well, for example, um, I'm studying neuroscience, and two of the authors I like a lot are Martin Seligman and Andrew Walpert. What neuroscience is finding is that faith in God is actually good for you, that it actually stimulates growth in the brain. So just thinking about God will grow the dendrites in the frontal lobe and creates more peace, more joy, has the potential for doing that. So, you know, stuff like that just really thrills me. Interesting. If we can find a way to live happy, find joy, to find humor, to find peace, then why not? You know, no matter what the world looks like. Reverend Molly Cameron is the founding minister of the Columbus, Ohio Center for Spiritual Living. She's also our regional support coordinator for Centers for Spiritual Living. Reverend Molly, thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you, Steve. It was a joy. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll listen in on a panel as they discuss the ideas presented by our guest, Reverend Molly Cameron. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Did you ever lie back on the lawn at night looking up at the stars and being filled with wonder? Have you ever had a burning bush moment when you knew it was time to do a thing or take a step, even if you didn't feel completely ready or prepared? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. Steve Vistonet is a graphic designer, artist, musician, husband, and father to three lovely daughters and three wild grandsons. Steve's wife, Tanya Vistonet, is also an artist. She shares the grandparent duties with those same three girls and three grandsons. She loves to read, sew, and create. Catherine Taylor is an art historian and writer who spends as much time studying the dead as the living. She has three brilliant children who can all do math better than she. Ralph Tobias is the father of three daughters, married to a New Jersey girl, grandfather to six. He's the on-air promotion manager at BYU Broadcasting. He's played guitar for 45 years and broken 13 bones. I was really impressed by Molly's connection to the transcendental movement and the the Center for Spiritual Living as kind of having those early Americana backgrounds that are also deeply rooted in the idea of nature, the universe, and this kind of sublime experience with God, where God inspires in you 
this awfulness, right? It, it's kind of this this mix between wonder and mortal experience, but also feeling yourself able to, well, where the individual is cognizant of their mortality, but also unable to comprehend their full importance within the universe. And that really happened for me, even as a young girl with art. I think one of the most impactful experiences I I had with that was as a university student, I was on a study abroad to Italy, and um, we happened to be in Ravenna one day. And Ravenna is in a really important city in the sixth century. And there are churches there and baptistries there that are covered in gold mosaics and colorful pieces of stone that create these otherworldly mystical kinds of environments for the viewer. And that mixed with the smell of incense and the wood polish and the candles and all of the other ancient artifacts, I kind of had a bit of a personal revelation in that space where I felt that I was one mind and one body in a very big and almost mysterious kind of situation, but I felt called to a vocation. I felt called to my own aesthetic studies and to move into a space where where I could experience those things often. And I know that the transcendental world, you know, as far as Emerson was concerned and um, had a lot to do with nature and But I find nature and truth and good and beauty and all of those kind of philosophical elements also within the world of images. And that that really connects spiritually for me as well as visually and vocationally. No, I like that. I was thinking it brought to mind a memory when we lived in Taiwan. I went to a Buddhist monastery that was high up in the mountains. And I thought, what kind of God do these people believe in? It must be different than mine because they're all wearing robes. They're growing their own food. And they're living here till they're 100 years old. Most Some of the monks there were 105 and 103. I haven't thought of this for years. And it was something that made me realize very strongly that we each get to find our own way. We each get our own path. And you were in Italy, and this woman had a a different... I think everybody has a a journey, and it doesn't matter where it begins, but that might have been my first realization that my way is not the only way, that um, these people believed in a higher power and we're having experiences that were true for them and important to them that were so outside of what I knew. But it was amazing to me to see people come to their own sense of belief of something greater than them and maybe a purpose in their life. My purpose was not to go live in a monastery in Taiwan on the top of a hill and eat I don't know, whatever 
vegetables or whatever. I, we had a lot of bok choy up there, I can remember. But <laughs> I think I learned a lot about what do I believe by watching what others believe. I spent a couple of years in Japan, and I had a similar experience in visiting the shrines and the, and the places of worship for the Buddhist and the Shinto uh, religions, and it was very eye-opening. Uh, I learned to really appreciate because I, the Japanese people in general, I just grew to love them so much because they were just beautiful people with hearts of gold. And I just felt myself drawn to them. They were just so kind to me. And it just, I had, I had no choice but to reciprocate that love. Very, very welcoming. Something Molly said, too, that really resonated with me is, is she said she had to find a way to live because of the difficulties that she was experiencing. And I can relate with that because growing up, I had a very difficult life um, at a very young age. I was in um, third grade when my parents split for the first time, and then uh, fourth grade, they split for good. And they were both wonderful people. They're both loving, caring nurturing people but my father grew up without a father being around he didn't know how to be a husband and my mother grew up in an abusive home and she was very codependent so she needed my dad to be there but my dad was a musician and he wasn't home he would work during the day as a draftsman and go out at night as a musician and he wasn't home so that kind of led to them separating and Unfortunately, the men that came into our lives then, me and my, my five siblings and my mom, were less than desirable. There was a lot of alcohol, a lot of drugs, and uh, you know, watching my mother get her jaw broken and uh, you know, this, this violence. And as a kid, I had to figure out my place in all of this. You know, When you see things like this, you have to make a decision. You're either going to continue that or you're going to say, no, it stops with me. And I remember that that was one of the decisions I made very early in my life is that I am never going to do those kind of things. And the interesting thing is, as far back as I can remember, God has always been part of my life. I've always believed my whole life that God was there. And the irony of it is, I learned that even in difficult situations, and maybe even more so, God is present because he loves each of us and cares about where we're going in that path. You know, we need to choose our path. We need to choose where we go. Well, he's going to be there every step of the way, maybe either helping or waiting for us to reach out and grab his hand. And I'm very grateful for parents who taught me to look for good in other people. Even the man that, uh, that broke my mother's jaw, I can remember uh, after one of their fights, he sat out and, you know, he, went, he wasn't drinking. He was a nice guy. Uh, after a fight, he went out and sat in the car and it was the winter time. I went out and I sat with him and I said, I'm not going in the house until you go in too. Of course, I knew he wouldn't want me to sit in the car for very long, so we went back in the house. But even with, with him, uh, my parents, thank goodness, taught me how to see good in, I think Molly touched on this a little bit, see good in everything, see good in all people. Yeah, I, I really appreciated that 
she talked about how in her role now, one of the most important things that she does is model compassion. Mm-hmm. I find that so compelling um, because she is a female leader. She is a female minister in her group. And she's not just taking on um, these responsibilities from the back row. She uses her voice in real ways in a venue where nurturing and choosing faith, I believe that's what she said, that that choosing faith is an active thing all of the time. And I appreciate that she is, she's a female leader modeling these characteristics for her congregation or those that are around her. The thing that really struck me, she said a couple of things I really enjoyed. The first one I want to cover is how she talked about how she's constantly learning Mm, yeah, and how yeah. she's step by step by step. And that just hits a chord with me because I'm constantly learning. I mean, I'm you know hopefully getting better as the years go on. I think I am. Um, but it's nice to hear other people realizing that, you know, there's there's not a point where he's like, oh, we've, we've learned it all. We're done. It's a constant move forward to learn. I love that. I all right, that Steve, was- let me put you on the spot. What is the latest thing that you've learned that you really benefited from? I'm a scholar of life, and so I like to pay attention to the people around me. And I, I've, I kind of watch the people at work. And there's a guy at work who is so good because he never talks bad about anybody. You know, and I'll try and like, oh, come on, didn't that just irritate you a little bit, what they did? And he's just like, it's, it's fine, man. It's all good. And I thought, I need to be more like him. I need to just let things go off and, and focus on the good and, and, and ignore the bad. And so there, there's something I've learned and am still learning. I'm trying to focus on that. Good I, job. Sorry. <laughs> I loved one thing Molly said about being very inclusive. Again, back to what you were saying, Catherine, about welcoming everybody because oftentimes I look at people in general or humanity and I'm so irritated by them. People are stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And humanity drives me crazy. But humans on a personal level, I love. I love getting to know people. And, And I thought about that a lot when she was talking about welcoming everyone because I haven't easier time on a one-on-one um, talking with someone or or I want to hear their stories or things than I do looking at general humanity. That's that's a little harder for me to, to excuse the dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but I love um, getting to know people and I loved where she's really striving to make a very safe place and a place where everybody feels in- inclusive. And I think that's something – that we as humans could be better at in general. I have to admit that I'm definitely one of those who I'm a positive person, but I tend to look for the irritating things people do and point those things out. So I'm trying harder, like Steve said, to to notice the good in, in others. And I love that she's created a space where she's speaking to that more. Steve, you mentioned that there were a couple of things that really impressed you, and you gave us one, but I cut you off from the second one. What else was there? Well, and this just goes along with my personality. I love how she talked about joy and humor because that's a huge part of my life. If I don't laugh during a day, it's a wasted day. And so that struck a chord with me. And, I mean, really, some of the best conversations and some of the times I've got to know people the very best is when we're laughing together. 
and we're having a good time and we're a little more open and there's just something wonderful about laughter and the way it makes you feel. And I just really like that she put an emphasis on that. It just that appeals to me a lot. And I think that hopefully someday I get to meet God. I'm pretty sure he will be a humorous person. I mean, I love how she said, humor is an underrated quality of God. I totally believe that. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Reverend Molly Cameron. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. And I love that she takes personal responsibility for setting herself up to invite joy. Or, I mean, she quoted Joseph Campbell, you know, following your bliss. And she sets up her practice That's something that's really important to me. You know, often within my religious tradition, practice in kind of a ritual way is not overly emphasized within one's personal life. And I find that you kind of have to mark that space for yourself. And I believe that setting up a practice where, you know, she talked about meditation and affirmations and prayer. Um, the other day I was driving, um, I was driving home from dropping my children off at school. I have a typical meditative practice in the morning, but I thought today I'm also, I'm going to take responsibility for myself and and have some personal affirmations that I I'm just going to speak out loud. And I I said out loud in my car, I am so blessed. Abundance flows to me. I am the luckiest woman. You know, anyway, and and you know, it was amazing how those things had changed my attitude of, I think, in a joyful, blissful way and set me up for the rest of the day. You know, I think that spirituality can often... um, be reduced to the things we do only within a religious ceremony or a religious space. But I think our spirituality must essentially bleed out into all parts of our lives. I love that joy and celebration and recognizing these these cycles in life are, are a part of that. And that's something that I want to continue to do. I'd like to go back to humor because Mm -hmm. I I really think that was an amazing point that she made. If you think about a lot of the comedians that you know, you look at their lives and a lot of them had very difficult lives growing up, Uh, you know, whatever it was. uh, There's just a lot of sadness there. And they've used humor to put themselves in a good place to deal with that. And I could totally relate with that. I've looked at old report cards and and the teacher says, Ralph's always trying to be the center of attention. And my family I has always seemed seemed to, I don't know why, because I don't think I'm that funny. They've always seemed to kind of depend on me to lighten the mood in, in rooms and things like that. But I really feel like I've used used humor because of the challenges that we had growing up that I used humor as a way of dealing with that. And it actually has helped. I'm really happy when I can make other people happy. Seeing other people smile, like you're smiling right now, that brings so much joy, Catherine's joy. It brings so much joy to me to see you smile, to see people smile. Humor is a great thing. It is a great thing, and it does bring joy, and joy is a beautiful thing. <laughs> she, she talked about it's a choice, 
And I really think it is totally a choice. Negativity, positivity, all of that is a choice. Um, one thing she talked about here is uh, addiction recovery. I'm the oldest of eight children. Half have been through rehab. And one of my brothers went through rehab right when we were first married. And part of his rehab was us going with him. One of the steps, I think he was 16 or 17, is we were on opposite sides of the room and he'd have to stand up and say things he'd done specifically either to us or harm he's caused. And then at the end, he'd always say, I love you, so-and-so to whoever he was talking about. And then we'd respond, I love you to him. And it was shocking to me that, and and we're in a group, you know, with a hundred people, to hear those yells back and forth of, I love you, after sharing some of the terrible things that gone through. And, and um, sorry, one of my brothers, 10 years ago, well, actually, it's been a little bit past, 2006, um, overdosed and um, ended up being life-flighted to a hospital. And um, he ended up in the hospital for three months. He was in a coma for a long time and really had to relearn how to walk, talk, function, um, everything again. And just watching that and the changes that he made, he ended up losing his family, losing his career, losing all of these things. And I'm, I'm, through listening to her, it just all came back to me, all of these addiction experiences that I've um, been through in my family and how it could easily sink you. And and I think one thing, Ralph, I, I can tell that you consciously made a choice that your childhood would not affect you so negatively. You've made a choice to be a joyful person. And I think that's something that we all have to decide. Molly decided, okay, I've made a choice that my addiction, I'm going to find God. And that is, there is a greater power in all of these addiction um, groups you go through. You need to tap into a greater power. That is what will help you. It was a real dark period, but I've, um, I really had to look at what, what I decided. Was I going to be a positive person or a negative person? Was I going to be mad at God? Or was I going to say, no, this is just part of this mortal experience, which oftentimes is not joyful, but am I going to try and find um, where I stand? How am I going to come out of this? And I think it's a it was a total conscious decision to decide that wasn't going to affect me negatively, but I was going to learn through someone else's experiences really that affected me and decide, no, I'm going to be a positive person and I'm going to try and spread joy and I want to listen to others so they have a sounding board. I don't know. I still am wrapping my 
head around this a little bit, but I loved where she came from saying, I came from this deep, dark place and really strove to find a God there and to find a higher power there. And I think we're all searching for that. What is that higher power? It starts with desire, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, if the unless the desire is there, right. you're not going to even attempt to open that door. Absolutely. We can't make someone change. One thing that impressed me that Molly said that um, seemed to give her a sense of relief was um, the moment when she talked about recognizing the per- her the personal sense of the divine in her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be different for all people, really. We all find our way to the divine along meandering paths. I love when she said, I can't tell you what truth is, but I can tell you what it is not because I sense that it's not. And I firmly believe there is something in all of us as human beings, whether it's that gut feeling or whatever you want to call it, that does kind of tell us when something's not quite right or if something's wrong or on the other hand, if something is right. And I love how she you know, would rely on that and, uh, and trust in that. And that was my initial thought when you said that. What makes me divine, and maybe that's God's gift to each of us, is that we have a little bit of him in us to help us make decisions, to help us sense when that person is not quite right or that doesn't seem to be quite right for my life. And this person is wonderful, and that does seem to be right. After our children moved out of the house, Steve and I looked at each other like, what is this now? What is what? Who are we? And we made a conscious, pretty conscious decision that we are bringers of joy, happy ambassadors, <laughs> and that we wanted to really promote happiness wherever we were and, and be be participators in life, go to art shows, go to all these different functions. And we felt very drawn to that. I don't know. How would you describe it? It's kind of like that that sense. It just felt right. It felt good to be making art and doing these things and meeting new people. It felt right, and and it was for us. It was great. We met wonderful people. It's kind of a, been a conscious decision to go to things and be participators because it's pretty easy to sit home and not. So I loved her calling she felt to to lead a church. That's not what I feel, but I definitely feel a calling that I need to be a connector of people. My calling was being a dad. I really felt strongly, and maybe uh, my background, my life led me to that. But I, you know, everybody become most people become parents. So you know that that's part of most people's lives. But for me, I, it really is a calling. It's something I knew I would be. I knew I would do. My dad w- was convinced I'd die before I became marrying age. But it's because I had no doubt about it. It's not something I had a question about. So for me, that was my calling. I knew that I would be a dad. I knew that I would uh, uh, you know, teach them and mentor them and, and give them every possible thing that I could. I could be a conduit from my parents to them because everything good in me – I trace back to God, of course, but to my parents as well. 
a decision I recently made was to um, establish for myself a word of the year that would set up um, how I wanted to feel over the year and the kinds of actions that would lead me to feel this way. And I was really struck by um, the question, how do I want to feel? And the word that I chose was jubilee. It has spiritual connotations. It has religious connotations. It's about celebration and forgiveness and recognizing the cycles in life, um, taking time for rest and uh, bringing forth the kind of fruits that come also out of restoration. And and that means that I have to put all of these things into practice, right? Again, back to the practice. My son is 12 years old, and he will still come and, and snuggle up. And so we're reading Stuart Little right now, right? And <laughs> that might not seem like an overtly religious or spiritual connection to Jubilee, but it, it is for me because it, it is a celebration, and it's a restoration and a building of our love and relationship. And I think that recognizing and setting into motion these practices and, and rituals really builds our spiritual life at the same time that it connects us to people in relationships of love and compassion. And I I mentioned that Jubilee also has this connotation of forgiveness. That's a heavy responsibility that I have taken on for, for the year, right? That is also something that I have to, that I'm now kind of working with. We just have to be patient with ourselves. Does anyone yeah. else practice this? I, we do that at our house as well. And my word for this year is positivity. The past year in the news, in life, in general, has been fairly negative from what I've seen. And I got tired of it. And so this year I'm focusing on only positive things. I'm seeing the good in people. I'm not focusing on the bad. I'm seeing the good in situations and whatever's going on. It's all about positivity. And I'm eliminating all negative things from my life. And so far it's been wonderful because I want to feel good. I want to feel joy, just like Molly said. So it's working. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists and especially to Reverend Molly Cameron for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. We hope you found value in today's conversation, and we welcome your thoughts and ideas. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts, or ask Alexa for the In Good Faith podcast. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. Production assistance came from Christine Knuckleby and Marcus Smith. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon, right here, in good faith.